Welcome back to the South African History Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 25 and we're following the early history of the Tlaza. And we're about to come into direct contact with the Dutch expanding from the Cape Peninsula. Remember last episode we heard about the growing bizarre behaviour by Kaleka, who was one of Paulus' sons, and his propensity to believe himself a diviner. That was after he escaped drowning in the musical-sounding Inkotola River. Paulo died in 1775, but Kaleka, who became chief, died only three years later. I was going to cover the infighting between Kaleka and his brother Rarabi, but we'll leave that for a little later. We're following the years of history here in a timeline format, and I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. Just a few comments about the Tlaza social system, which is going to have a bearing on our story as the Trek Boers came up against their clans. The matrix of Tlaza political and social organization was the small village led by the homestead head. He and sometimes she were drawn into wider relationships partly through membership of a patrilineage. His brothers, their father and his brothers, their grandfather and his brothers and so on for four or five generations to the earliest ancestor remembered by all these lineages. It was an extension of time and space where it was father and his sons and their uncles and their sons, uncles and their nephews, elder brothers and younger brothers. The elevation of the Amachawi to the position of royal clan did not alter these existing lineages. The chiefs still referred to each other as older brother or umkuluwa, or younger brother known as umninawa. The king was known as the Nkosunkul, which literally meant big chief, but also means the chief who is the eldest son. Young chiefs of the Amachawi would be installed by the placing of a necklace of red beads around their necks. The rights of all chiefs were derived from the Nkosunkul. The king was responsible for all matters which affected the lineage as a whole, such as the crucial first fruit ceremony. The other chiefs or his younger brothers owed him respect and obedience. At marriage feasts, the king's counsellor present would be entitled to the right foreleg of a slaughter cow. Not even the brothers of the king would claim this important meat. There was a limit, however, to this power. Just because the king was head of the lineage did not mean he could make unreasonable demands at the expense of the tribe's affairs. Junior chiefs could wear royal insignia and judge their own local cases as well as receive direct tribute from their locals. As King Chiwu told Kwani when he installed him as chief of the Kunukwebe, you may throw your spears against me if I wrong you. The king would not visit the junior chiefs, they would visit him. In the 19th century, this caused much friction between the Tosa kings and the British. For example, Hinsa was told to visit Grahamstown to meet colonial officials and asked incredulously, Was the governor in the Cape in the habit of visiting other people? Chiefs communicated mostly by trusted councillors and met only on rare occasions. No chief, though, would take any important decisions when it involved war without consulting the other chiefs. As you can see, these rights and obligations suffered from an imprecise character and success of this system depended on two major conditions. Firstly, that direct and constant contact and communication was received between brothers of the royal line. And secondly, the perpetual familiarity of circumstances need to be maintained. This means the chiefs were used to dealing with certain things over a period of time which stabilized their relationship. The coming of the Dutch Trek Boers and the English settlers was going to shake this political system to its foundation as they were about to experience things and people that were alien to their systems. There was also constant migration and segmentation taking place, similar in a way to the Dutch youths, with no cash in the Cape. More about that in a moment. The Tlaza sons moved away to find their own land and space, 
and geographic and genealogical segmentation increased, making it far more difficult for closet chiefs to control what was going on. Faced with new circumstances, such as the European peasants, Klausa became confounded as their political system had no abstract norms as guidelines, no precedents to follow, and no tradition of unconditional obedience to the king. When the Trek Boers arrived, some chiefs regarded them as a threat, but others saw personal, political, and economic advantage, and told the king that their dealings with these newcomers was their right and within their domestic jurisdiction, similar to how they had dealt with the Khoi and the San. There was another weakness in the traditional Khoza society. Political competition between chiefs is always noted in any society, and here the ranking system and kinship networks were confounded over time. The rules went like this. The heir to the chieftainship was known as the Great Son, who was the son of the Great Wife, and she was usually a member of the Amatimbu clan. Her bride wealth, or lobola as we call it, was paid by all the people, and her status was publicly proclaimed. The second ranking wife was the right-hand wife, and her son was the right-hand son. All the other wives were Amatkadi, minor wives. The eldest son in each homestead ranked ahead of his younger brothers. What was to cause trouble for the Khoza and still does, is that it was possible to circumvent these rules, particularly since the great wife was often only married to the king very late in life, and sons often died young through illness and war. When a chief died, there would often be a series of counterclaims by other wives. Sometimes it was alleged that the king was not actually the father of the great son, or in other challenges, the heir apparent had been disowned by the king so could not become the new king. Sometimes a contender could be eliminated through witchcraft accusations. So the longer a king remained in office, the more secure his position. At times, succession would be affected by claims that the new young king was stingy or cruel or even stupid. The system was mostly positive. It survived for hundreds of years before the first European settlers arrived. Incompetent chiefs would be shuffled off, while the power of councillors was far more established than amongst Zulu, for example, where the king was basically a despot. But it could endanger the Klausa nation as a whole, since it gave rise to the temptations for factions to call in outside help. To put it directly, the Klausa kings rarely chose the path of military confrontation. They tended to maintain their position through judicious interference in the quarrels of their subordinates. Every year, the junior chiefs would reaffirm their loyalty to the king in the first fruit ceremony, in which each awaited the king's word before being allowed to taste their harvest. Junior chiefs were also supposed to send the king messengers to keep him informed of important events and to consult him and ask permission before expanding territory and so on. He then sent them orders, or imu yolelu, which were prescribed. They could not be too vague or arbitrary, nor could the king demand imu yolelu, which he clearly did not have sufficient power to enforce. As with other ancient royal cultures, the king controlled his subordinates through circumstances at that time and through his personality. The power of the king was limited by what his own people were prepared to accept. With that, it's time to head back south to the expanding Dutch settlement in the Cape of the early 1700s. We'll return to the Tosa soon. The Dutch commander system had been in place for at least two decades before the settlers would use it to full effect against the Khoi and San, and later the Tosa and other people. It had evolved since the late 17th century and was associated with tactics that combined two pillars of Burger military supremacy, the musket and the horse. The lightly incumbent commander made rapid and unexpected thrusts against the enemy thanks to the mobility and resilience of the men's sturdy ponies. Once scouts had located the enemy and reported back, the commander would take a circuitous route 
keeping out of sight until ready to attack. When the foe was in sight, the horsemen formed a line holding their muskets in one hand and charged. Once they reached musket range, but out of range of the koi or sand spears, arrows and slingshots, they dismounted. The settlers' horses were well trained and just stood there next to their rider instead of running off. The commander would fire a volley, then remount and fall back again to reload, repeating the procedure. If two ranks of horsemen could be formed, this was even more devastating to men armed only with spears and arrows and stones. The second line would take the place of the first and fire their volley, then retreat to reload. Imagine this as a continuous process, because by the early 18th century, the newer muskets could be loaded in less than 20 seconds. And if the Boers had two muskets, which many did, the firepower would double. The commando fought more like mounted infantry than cavalry, which usually remained on their horses and fought with steel rather than just muskets. The Boers did not carry sabres or lances, and were actually reluctant to engage in hand-to-hand combat. If they did charge, the Khoi would pick them off using their cattle at times as a barrier, and they were much more effective than the Boers at a hand-to-hand fight. At other times, the Dutch settlers armed their Khoi servants. Sometimes these men, many mixed race as the sons of slaves, would set themselves up a short distance behind the main row of horsemen and reload second firearms, they called achtereyes. These men were also known as bastard hottentots, men whose fathers were slaves and their mothers were koi-koi, whose fathers were freeburgers and the mothers were slaves or koi. Sometimes, when the Dutch VOC demanded farmers join them on a campaign against the koi, they would send these sons of slaves instead. These mixed koi, European and African fighters had been called collaborators in a typical use of a 20th century concept, which is highly inaccurate. They were more like clients, which is where a socially adrift community or individual receives security and livelihood in exchange for labour or soldering. I have reminded our listeners that merely deploying an us-them logic to the story is a romantic delusion. The Dutch settlers were using people of different races as skilled artisanal support and at times as a joint security system against the Khoi and San, who were extremely effective fighters. To consider the handful of settlers versus thousands of indigenous men fighting for their honour as a done deal is an insult to the memory of these Khoi and San warriors. I often think about how one of our modern deterministic office-bound historians of whatever race would cope facing these fighters. Would these soft little intellectuals have the guts to tell the Khoi and San warrior to their faces that they were collaborators? I think not. A flash of iron and the self-righteous revisionists would be chopped up like an academic fillet. Back to the story. When William Madrian van der Stel was governor in the early 18th century, the San and Khoi launched numerous attacks on the expanding settlements of the Drakenstein and Stellenbosch, which eventually fizzled out. But starting in 1715, the little Namakwa and Gurikwa, with their San allies, mounted a widespread series of raids which had a real edge. It was during this crisis that the VOC first sanctioned a commando consisting entirely of free burger volunteers under burger officers to go out and recover stolen cattle without any regular company troops present. The precedent would become the norm. Not only was the VOC spared the expense of deploying soldiers far from the castle, it allowed farmers on the front line to mount a rapid counter-attack to any threats. Ominously, however, this arrangement suited the frontiersmen who were thirsting for koi cattle and sand labour. It also gave these hard men latitude to act at will against the Khoisan without interference from the government's restraining hand, as John Labunt writes in his wonderful book, Land Wars. It was not only in the northwest that the Khoisan were beginning to challenge Dutch expansion with greater force. In 1719, the Gurikwa and Atakwa in the east mounted a successful raid along the Rivers Underund River, 
before they were eventually driven out. In a series of raids and counter-raids, the Dutch settlers drove these two tribes north towards the sources of the Gurits and Ulifans rivers. But it was true that the continuing skirmishes and clashes through the 1720s and 1730s saw Khoisan counter-raiding most active, eventually leading to the powerful great Namakwa people from beyond the Orange River being caught up in these battles. Meanwhile, a steady trade involving ivory and cattle had begun to increase along the southeastern Cape seaboard as expeditions accelerated, usually starting from Stellenbosch. These could last up to nine months, or even a year, and often returned loaded with ivory. While most of these expeditions were secretive, as we've already heard involved the signing of books that were blank, in other words, securing confidentiality by swearing oaths of silence, scandals were many. I explained how Van der Jr. had been informed about the raid involving around 45 young men from Stellenbosch, who, along with their Khoisan servants, rode eastward and fought with a party of up to 600 Khoza when they met, near where the town of Somerset East is today. That is well south of later colonial explanations of where the Khoza were living. While they failed to lift a single cow from the Khoza, this party made up for this by raiding friendly Khoi tribes in the vicinity instead. Trade in cattle was a VOC monopoly and Dutch settlers were forbidden from travelling east of the Khamtuas River in those early days. This was also the first time the Dutch from the Cape had accosted Khoza warriors. It wouldn't be the last. So, by 1715, the VOC had begun to tire of the settlers sowing discord along the frontiers and decided to stop sending European immigrants to the Cape. This was finally enforced in 1717, and shortly afterwards, the expanded war with the Khoisan began, as we've just heard. The VOC no longer desired a growing Freeburger population, and the main reason was the cost. The company had been running at a loss in the Cape since Jan van Riebeck's time, and these losses were mounting. This was worsened by overproduction of food in the Cape, while the company was paying fixed prices for goods. Cape farmers were dependent on passing fleets to drive their sales, and could not rely on the internal economy. At times of war, this improved with more troops stationed along the peninsula, but even then the BOC could not get rid of surplus wheat piling up at their port. They exported 15,500 bushels of wheat annually to the Far East, but this was not enough to break even. Wine farmers fared even worse, as Cape wine travelled badly, and acquired a poor reputation abroad, at least at first. The good wine made it to Batavia, where it was enjoyed, but that was also not enough to break even. A series of animal diseases decimated Cape flocks and herds between 1714 and 1718, and prices then rose steeply for a few years. But by the 1720s, they had dropped once more, and by 1730, the price for a sheep had dropped from seven guilders to three. Compounding the losses was a simultaneous catastrophic decline in the number of koi koi workers. Expensive slaves had to be purchased instead, or hired from other farmers in the various districts. The price of land, though, began to decline at the same time, which dropped steadily through the 1700s. Because the Cape system of land tenure was linked to what is known as partible inheritance, further problems accrued. When a Dutch farmer died, his land, or hers, was normally divided equally between the children and the surviving spouse. Each child, regardless of sex, was entitled to an equal portion. By the close of the VOC-sponsored phase of European settlement in 1717, wealth was unevenly distributed among the farming population. The young adult children of the established Freeburgers were in a good position to establish careers for themselves, but there was a growing population of young Dutchmen and women who were destined to inherit virtually nothing, and who had limited access to loans. This turned into a major grievance and accelerated the pace at which Dutch pastoral farmers moved out into the frontier. 
and that accelerated the pace of clashes between frontier farmers and the indigenous people. What is called the Trek Boer economy began to develop. It was similar in some ways to the American frontiersmen and women experience. As the number of stock farmers increased, more and more loan farms were taken out at increasing distances from Cape Town. The number of independent stockholders, who comprised about a tenth of the 260 agricultural producers in 1716, increased to 225 in 1746 and 600 in 1770. And by then, they represented two-thirds of all independent farmers. So you can see what a rapid increase in the number of pastoralists took place, while at the same time, arable farmers or mixed farming grew much slower. The Trek Boer economy was born. As my earlier podcast pointed out, the geography of South Africa would now play its part. The direction of Trek Boer expansion was largely due to the nature of the terrain, the availability of permanent surface water, the quality of pasture, and the number of indigenous people living nearby. With that thought ringing in our ears, or something to that effect, it's time to halt this episode. Next, we'll track the Trek Boers as they expanded into the Northern Cape and began encroaching on Causaland. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. It leads to more views and listens. You can also contact me directly on Twitter at Des Latham or through the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. Until next, tootsies. Thank you.